Good morning, church. As we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 this morning. Revelation chapter 3, specifically verses 7 through 13. Uh, We're continuing in a series, if you're new to Dawson, entitled Dear Church. There's seven addresses, seven letters that the risen, glorious Savior speaks to seven churches and what was ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Western Turkey today. And one of the great things about Scripture is, is as we listen to the words of Jesus to this church and to each church, we hear through the power of the Spirit of God, Him speaking to us individually, Him speaking to our families, to Him speaking to our church family this morning. So hear the word of the Lord from Revelation 3, starting in verse 7. And to the church, or to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. One thing that I've grown to love a little bit the older I get is to drive through small towns on the way to some other place. Just a few weeks ago, we were headed to the beach and a variety of ways you can go to the beach depending on where you're headed to, but I always enjoy getting off the interstate and going through small Alabama towns, small Florida towns on the way to our destination. There's something about those towns that have character and I always kind of imagine, I'm always looking for the churches, imagine sort of the pastors in that area. What would it be like to live in those areas? Just a couple of weeks ago, one of my sons was playing baseball in Albertville. Never been to Albertville, Alabama before. Google Maps told me I could go two ways. One way is the interstate. The other way was through Pinson and Rimlap and Aniana. You know which way I went? Rimlap. Aniana, I've never seen those places before. I wanted to drive through those places. My son that was sitting next to me, I was like, look at this, look at that, look at this. And he was like, Dad, I get it, I get it. I think some of this was birthed, the genesis of this sort of love of small towns, going through them, seeing what's around. It's probably 20 years ago or so, a lot more than 20 years ago now, when Danielle and I were living in Birmingham, the first go-around. I was studying at Beeson Divinity School, in-laws lived in North Mississippi. So 20 years ago, it was before Quarter X was finished. It's before what we know as I-22. So to get to that part of Mississippi, you go old Highway 78. You remember this? Some of y'all know where I'm talking about here. You're going to go through Carbon Hill. 
if you're driving 78. You're going you're gonna to go through Winfield, Alabama. Before you get to Winfield, Alabama, you know what you're going to see? You're going to get to Eldridge, Alabama. That's right. We've got decades of, of goofy pictures of me standing before Eldridge Baptist Church signs with like a thumbs up right there. <laughs> goofy pictures. I've got like a really small list of churches that I want to preach at before the Lord takes me home. And Eldridge Baptist Church is on the top of that list. So one Sunday, I will have an excused absence. And you're going to know he finally got his dream to preach at Eldridge Baptist Church. My great-great-granddad founded that city. Actually, I'm making all that up. I have no idea. I don't know anything about it. I just always stopped. Last time we stopped there, it was just about six, seven months ago. Somebody drove into the church parking lot and they they looked at us and they were like, what are you doing here? And I tried to, well, David, you know, I tried to explain and then uh, she she wasn't buying it. So I was like, guys, get in the vehicle. We got to go. We look a little suspicious here. So you get past Eldridge and you're on the way to Winfield and you're going to come to two towns. Gwen and you win. The hyphen. You know where I am now? So Gwyn with the hyphen there, before it was Gwyn in the 1950s and before it was Eargap, Alabama. And the residents of Eargap, Alabama heard that Gwyn wanted to annex Eargap. And so they said, we need to incorporate. And so Gwyn and Winfield, uh, Eargap was in between. So they took Gwyn. And I can go through a whole list of, of more famous places. I lived uh, eight years and pastored outside of Tupelo, Mississippi, home of Elvis. And that was Gum Pond before it turned to Tupelo. New Amsterdam, more famously, is, is uh, New York. I mean, you can go through Hot Springs, New Mexico. There's now truth or consequences. And I could go on with more examples of towns and cities changing their names. But I would imagine by this point, you're asking, why would I do that? Which is a really good question. What does this have to do with Revelation 3? Well, each of these cities, they they face an identity crisis of sorts. Each of these cities were having to answer the question, who are we and who are we going to be? Who are we going to become? And so Jesus is addressing the church at Philadelphia. And here that church at Philadelphia was in the midst of an identity crisis. It had been named and renamed and named and renamed again. It's set on a geological fault line where there were earthquakes that were frequent. There was volcanic activity that bred constant fear in the residents of Philadelphia. There were unexpected deaths and devastation, constant rebuilding every time. In the Roman period of Philadelphia, when it would, when it would uh, be evacuated and rebuilt, Rome would rename it. So Philadelphia was the, the last of names that came to this place right here. And so Jesus is writing these really comforting words to a city that is living in an ever-changing identity. The anxiety of an ever-shifting earth beneath their feet and the everyday realities of persecution and opposition. Could you imagine going to First Church Philadelphia, hearing the pastor stand up and say, I've got a special message to you today. It's from Jesus himself. He says to all of us here that he's going to write the name of my God upon and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, verse 12, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. 
You know what he's saying? He's going to give us a name that can't be changed. That the city that we're headed to is a city that will stand forever. And we're going to live as citizens in a place that cannot be shaken. Where our citizenship cannot be revoked. We never have to move, nor do we have to hide again. We don't have to evacuate any longer here. Could you imagine the, the, the course that he would build up to, this sort of crescendo where the preacher is saying, you know something, we're not going to have to leave or board up or pack up or pick up. We don't have to rebuild ever again. I've got it on good authority. And on the authority of Jesus himself that addresses in verse 7 himself as the holy one, the true one. And those two descriptors are really important. Jesus comes as the one who is set apart. He comes as one who is above and is sovereign, but intimately knows all of their fears and all of their concerns. But more than that, he's not just the holy set apart one, but he's the true one. In our day, it is hard to know if I'm reading and what I'm reading, is it true or is it not true? Is it some of the truth? Is it, is it a perspective and a spin upon the truth? Sometimes words come out of your mouth and, and, and there's some of the truth, but that's the whole truth here. And Jesus says, hey, listen, what I am saying to the church at Philadelphia here, I come as the true one. So this isn't the power of positive thinking here. About some beleaguered Christians who were longing to fix their hopes on something. No, this is Jesus saying to them, I have true words because I come to you as the one who holds the keys. Did you notice that in this passage here? He has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Fill, fill in your pocket right now. Some of you have a key fob. It's going to get you back into your vehicle. Some of you feel your house key in your pocket right now. Some of you might have a, a key to a post office box in your pocket. Some of you have keys to, to work in your pocket. Some of you have keys and you don't even know what those keys unlock in your pocket. It's, it's, you, you, you've got keys and you don't know what it opens here. But you, but you have a key and, and we know what it is to have keys. And here we see Jesus is the one who holds the master key. The house of David. He is the promised Messiah is what this passage is speaking of. He is the heir of the kingdom of David. He is the one that the prophets predicted in the Old Testament who would come and rule in a temple that can never be destroyed and would sit on a throne that can never be conquered and would, would reign over a kingdom that would know no foes for the eternity that has come. And he is saying that, that I am coming and I have this master key to the kingdom of God. I have a key that opens up heaven and hell. I have a key that, that unlocks the hardest of hearts because it holds uh, life and death in my hands. I've got that key. And it's a really good reminder for all of us. You're praying for loved ones. You're praying for loved ones to come to faith in Jesus. You've got coworkers that are far from God and you, you long for them to move from death to life. You long for them who are blind to see the glory of Jesus that has captured your heart. And so you pray for them. But at times in our evangelism, we know that we've been saved by grace, but at times we can be practicing atheist in our evangelism. We think that the, the reception of the gospel is completely dependent upon you and me. We've got a friend and they've got all kinds of questions and we think to ourselves, well, if I could only answer their questions perfectly, then they would come to faith in Christ. 
We've got a family member that was burned by the church when he or she was a teenager or a young adult, and we think if we could only explain those circumstances in such a way, and we think to ourselves that it's all dependent upon us, and Jesus says, no, I come and I hold the keys. I hold the keys that unlock the hardest of human hearts. I come and I can unlock the the sin-stained heart of any sinner who by faith would turn to me. It is above your pay grade and it is above my pay grade. It is not your responsibility nor my responsibility to save anyone, but we usher them into the presence of the one who has the keys. And we pray for them. And we talk to them and we listen to them. And we do answer questions and we do point them to the word of God. But there is only one who can save and is the one who has, he, who has the master key that can unlock the hardest of human hearts. He holds the keys and he opens the doors. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open, do you see it in verse 8? An open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Last week, we talked about the church in Smyrna. And that was a church that received almost all condemnation and very little commendation. Jesus came, and he came calling them to repentance. There was a faithful remnant there, and he addresses that faithful remnant. But much of the word was this strong prophetic word. Jesus comes to the church at Philadelphia, and you know what he does? He gets on one knee, and he embraces a church that is beleaguered and hurting. He embraces a church that's on the receiving end of persecution. And he says, I've opened a door for you. Now, what what does this door get us to? What is the door that Jesus is unlocking here? There's some scholars They've looked at this passage and said, this is a door of evangelism. This is a door of missions. But one principle, when you're reading your Bible and you lack clarity in a verse, one of the ways that the Spirit of God helps clarify what verses mean for us is to be able to expand the the circle around the verse. And you let Scripture speak to Scripture. So if you just go to Revelation chapter 4, Guess what? You're going to hear about another door that's open there that might shed some light on this open door here. Look at Revelation 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This is John's perspective. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here. Come into the presence of heaven. Come into the presence of God. And I will show you what must take place after this. So John is moving in the book of Revelation in chapter 3 to what's around him in these seven churches. And now he is going to get an eternal 35,000 foot view of what is to come. And he is invited into a place where where God in this moment is, is peeling back the curtains and allowing him to be in the place of the presence of God. You have passages in the Old Testament, like Isaiah chapter 60, verse 11, that speak of the the very gates of Jerusalem being open. Why? So that nations can dwell with God. Do you know what this open door is? It is an open access. It's an open door to the very presence of God. This is a congregation that has no prestige. It has no power. It has no position. And you get a little bit of it here just reading verse 8. Little influence, little power. They're on the receiving end of persecution in verse 9. They're they're being excluded. They're being left out. 
They're being persecuted by who? The synagogue of Satan. What in the world are we talking about here? If you follow along, this isn't the first time that there's been a reference here. You've got to know the history of this to understand what's going on. In that first century world, especially in ancient Asia Minor, you have what was imperial worship. So all of these cities, they're having to bow down to the emperor who said, I am a god. They have to bring homage. They would have to worship. There was one group that got an exemption. Do you remember what group that was? Was it Christians? No. You know what group it was? It was the Jewish people. And so you have people, we don't know all the historical details of this, but Jesus says they say that they're Jews, but they lie. So what it seems is if maybe there's some Christians living in Philadelphia who want to be exempt from the persecution. So they say, hey, I'm going to wrap myself in the cloak of Judaism. Or you have some non-Christians who who don't want to worship. They want to pay homage. And so they say, hey, I'm going to take the name of the Jewish faith. Well, they're of the synagogue of Satan. Why? Because Satan is the deceiver. They're lying. Satan opposes the things of God. So it seems as if this group of people are raising their hand saying, hey, I know the people who are of the way, who are Christians, who oppose the emperor. It's those people. So they're shutting all of these doors, doors of economic opportunity. They're being shut. Doors of freedom, they're being shut. Doors of opportunity, they're being shut. They're being shut by persecution. They're being shut by people that are opposing the works of God. And these beleaguered Christians right here in Philadelphia, they don't have any power. They don't have any prestige and ability to be able to open these doors. And Jesus says, guess what? I've opened a door. I've opened a door of access that you can have to me, a holy God. And this is the most important door that can be opened. You know when it's shut? Well, you got to go back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are in the garden. And one of the effects of sin is shame that come upon Adam and Eve. But you know, another effect is separation. One of the saddest, most harrowing passages in all of the Bible is Adam and Eve. They were walking with God. They were talking with God. They were in instant communication with God. They were able to worship with him, talk to him. But after sin entered into the garden, you remember, they, they were escorted out of the garden. Angels were set up. So they couldn't happen to walk back in the garden. And forevermore, after Adam and Eve had sinned enter into the garden, we've all had this honing mechanism saying, how can we get back to where we once belonged? How can we make our way back to the Garden of Eden? We, we are created in the image of God. We need to be reunited with our creator and our maker, but there's sin that separates us and Jesus comes And he becomes because there is a closed door that our sin has. We can't be in the presence of a holy God. But guess what? He lived a perfect life. He died a saving death. He was raised to defeat death and hell and the grave. And there is no door, even the door of Satan, even the door of sin that Jesus through his work can't, through the master key that he has from the Father open. And any person that is here this morning, 
Any person that is here that would turn to him can walk through that door and be in the very presence of God as a sinner because God sees you why. He sees you how. He sees you through the blood and the cloak of Jesus Christ. And this is wonderful news for all of us. It's news that we sing about. Remember that old hymn? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is all other ground sinking sand. Jesus is the one, my friends, I remind you, who holds the key. He's the one who opens the door. And he is the one who holds our future. Again, one of the ways that scripture speaks to us is through what it repeats. We have seven letters that Jesus gives to these churches. So often the repetition is at the very end of the address to each of these churches. Jesus, he takes the gaze of these Christians, oftentimes in persecuted places, and he moves from from looking around them to looking ahead to a heavenly perspective. And so Jesus is is bringing them to this crescendo of what what heaven is going to be like. And he does this for the church at Philadelphia. He reminds them, I hold your future because I hold you. Notice in verse 10, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. There's a lot going on in these passages. It is easy to miss the forest for the trees as we walk through this passage and wonder, what is the hour of trial that is coming upon the world? What what is Jesus speaking of here? Is he speaking of something that the church at Philadelphia would experience? Is he speaking of something that's far down the road? Could the answer be both and? Could he talk about the trials that they are experiencing and the trials they will experience? But is he also, this is how revelation works, you have, you have present tense time that occurs in Revelation. You have past tense that's in the book of Revelation. And you have future tense that's there. You have things that are going to come down the road. And you have things that are going on around them all at the same time. And time seems to mesh in the book of Revelation in the midst of the symbolism that is occurring here. So the hour of trial certainly will be a time before the second coming of Christ. We read of the bowls and we read of the trumpets and we read of the seals that will come. This is all in the book of Revelation. This will come as sort of a, a tremors and pains of the earth before the second coming of Christ where he writes every wrong. There will be trials. And what Jesus is saying in this passage isn't for us to sit back and sort of as, as detectives try to predict, okay, based upon what he said here, I can look at the newspaper and see that that means that he must be coming back at this date and at this time. And you're sort of like connecting these dots. That's not the purpose of this passage. The purpose of this passage isn't for us to try to figure out exactly when his second coming is going to be. The purpose of this passage is to say, hey, I am coming and I hold you. 
And even in the midst of trials and persecution and difficulties, I've got you in my hands. This is a promise of security to people in the midst of a whole lot of insecurity. This is the promise of inclusion for a community of Christians that were excluded. They were ostracized. And Jesus is saying, your future destination, you're going to be a part of a new temple in New Jerusalem, in a city that will never change. You're you're going to be a pillar. Notice the imagery here. Could you think of, of anything that is more symbolic of what would crush and what would crack in the midst of an earthquake? It'd be a pillar. It cracks and it falls. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to make you into a pillar that can never crack, that no earthquake could ever bring down. And the purpose of the passage is to tell them and to tell us that there's wonderful comfort, that, that no enemy can harm them eternally, that no persecution can dislodge them from the very hand of God. They are safe in his presence, even when they're not safe in the world that they're living in. Where they're headed is a place where he's going to change their name to an unchanging name. And they're going to be citizens of an eternal city that cannot be shaken. And this is really good news because one of the things about life is having to come to grips with how little you have to control in your life, especially around the the what-ifs of life. I mean, the church in Philadelphia had all these what-ifs. What if another earthquake hits? What if we're persecuted even more? And you have what-ifs also. We, we might not worry about the what-ifs of, of seismic activity under our feet. But I tell you, there, there are things that can shake us. And there are things that can destabilize us. And you've got a litany of those things that oftentimes flash through your mind. And, and they're accompanied by the, the what-if. What if the diagnosis comes back? What if the economy? What if the job market? What if my son, what if my daughter? What if, what if, what if? And a part of maturation, this side of heaven, is is realizing on earth that a part of faith is realizing that you are finite and not infinite. That so often what we worry about with the what ifs are far beyond our control. And that can be a humbling place to be, but it also can be a freeing place. Because when you come to the place where you realize that you are not God, now listen, should we be prayerful? Yes. Should we be prudent? Yes. Should we be wise? Yes. Should we be responsible? Yes. But are you God? No. Are you the, the captain of your ship? that can pave a way of of security and prosperity, that's unshakable? The answer is no. Can you pave the way where, where things will not befall you that are difficult and challenging? The answer is no. And you you will fight against that until you come to the place to realize that oftentimes there's there's little that we can do in certain situations other than to come to our knees in total dependency to the one who is sovereign, the one who is in control, the one who sees all, and the one who is not threatened by your what-ifs nor my what-ifs. 
That was true for the church in Philadelphia. Is it true for you? The church here at Dawson. Bucket list of not a small town I want to visit, but a city that I want to get to is San Francisco. I've never been there. I want to go there. I want to see the Giants play in Candlestick Park there, but more than that, I want to go to the Golden Gate Bridge. One of the modern wonders of architecture and design. Decades ago, it cost $35 million to build. One of the things that was unique about it, especially in the U.S. context, was that the first that was built was stringent safety requirements. You know this about the Golden Gate, that, that out of $35 million to build that bridge, $150,000 was used in the 30s to build a safety net under the bridge. And in the months of building the bridge, there were 19 people that fell to what would have been their certain death, except there was a net that caught them. I don't know if you know this, but there were projections of how long it was going to take to finish the, the, the building of this bridge. The workers, with a safety net under them, they finished the bridge four times quicker than the projections before them. And you ask, why? How would that be the case? Well, the answer is obvious. Because, because these workers had the assurance of their safety, they were free to do what? To wholly devote themselves to the project before them. I just want to remind you that you have something far greater than an earthly safety net. You have the sovereign hand of God that holds you Christian tight. So we as Christians, we have the assurance of a God who has us and holds us in his hands, who has promised he will never leave us nor forsake us, who is determined before the foundation of the earth, the, the eternity that is before us, this, I remind you, is just the good news that you are secure even when you feel insecure. That you're held by him even when you feel as if you're faltering and falling. So wholeheartedly serve him. Wholeheartedly honor him wholeheartedly praise him and wholeheartedly love him. Why? Because he has you in his hands. You, my friend, are safe even when you do not feel safe. And you're secure even when you feel insecure. This is good news. It was good news 2,000 years ago. For those who have ears to hear, it's the best news today. Let us pray.